Good morning, church. How y'all doing? All right, all right. Uh, Yesterday, as Pastor Lou said, there was a uh, a community event. There were bounty houses and ice cream. And so the church has really set a precedent for my two boys. Um, They were quite disappointed to arrive today without a bounty house or ice cream. That's what church meant for them. But thank you guys. Um, as Pastor mentioned, my wife, Sharice, is here. Can we just celebrate her real quick? She is the reason why um, uh, Legendary Legacy started. Legendary Legacies is an organization that me and my friend uh, Junito started, where we work with young men in the city, uh, 17 to 24. Uh, specializing in working with those who are incarcerated or recently returning from incarceration um, and helping them to be equipped with the tools to maximize their potential. Um, And she was a real impetus behind that getting going. So um, thank you, babe. Uh, So yeah, I want to share a little bit about my my story with you guys um, and through it understand um, just how gracious God is in the midst of everything. So before I get into the story, there is a, a verse in 2 Timothy that I'd like to um, just set the foundation for. And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, as Paul's writing to his disciple Timothy, it says, Remembering your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy, clearly recalling your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and I am convinced is also in you. This verse is very relatable to me. My my grandmother wasn't Lois, my mother wasn't Eunice, but for me, grandma was Eva Box, and mom was Karen. And she had a very solid faith, a very solid faith through the midst of a lot of things that we went through that she would always go back to and really stand on. And she imparted that into her children. I have two older sisters, one younger sister. I'm the only boy, so I always put the toilet seat down. Don't ask Sharice. <laughs> we were, I was born in Chester, Pennsylvania. Chester, Pennsylvania is a depressed town besides like two industries, uh, oil refinery and medical. My father, who was an army veteran, uh, he got a job as a plant supervisor and got a little bit of cash in his pocket and we were able to move the family when I was about three uh, from Chester to the other side of the Delaware River in New Jersey. So we were in the suburbs. It might be the best thing that my father did for us uh, as a family growing up. It was shortly after that that dad left the family. I don't know exactly when he left, but I remember getting ready for my first day of kindergarten distinctly and him not being there for some reason. Uh, dad went on his own way. He, um, I found out later that he had a lot of his own demons that he was wrestling with. He had addiction issues. Uh, cocaine was his drug of choice, as well as uh, gambling was something that he really wrestled with. But it was a a faith that my mom had established in us very early on. I was brought to church. I was probably in church in the womb. Um, And we were in church like so often 
uh, as I said yesterday, it'd be like, like the Jesus that was on the cross, he would look at us and be like, y'all here again? Like, <laughs> golly. From uh, Bible studies to children ministries to different things, my grandmother was the Sunday school teacher, and so I had to always perform well on those little tests and exams because if not, it got back to mom too about how I wasn't up to par on some of my Bible knowledge. My father had left. My mom was doing the best she could. And so before I get into the rest of the story, there's one other thing I want to go over with you guys. If I have any psychologists or social workers, you may be familiar with known, what's known as the ACE trauma chart. The ACE trauma chart, ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. It was a study that the Center for Disease Control did, initially coming out of obesity, but as they begin to find uh, other links to adult maladies that were connected to number of childhood trauma. And so you would go through this chart here, and for everything on this chart, if one of them had happened to you prior to the age of 18, you would get a point. The higher your point, the more likely you are to have some of these adverse adult experiences. When I became aware of this chart, it was very interesting to me as I looked at it because nine of these things have happened in my life. It's kind of serious because they, they, the, the studies show that after four or more of these, the um, chances exponentially jump up. The one that stands out most to me that I can remember is attempted suicide. After four or more of these, that jumps up over a thousand percent. So now I'll get into the story. Growing up, without my father there was a very painful experience. He would tell us often that he was going to come, he was going to show up, he was going to be there. There were many a times I remember almost like um, my mom had signed us up for Little League, and I remember distinctly one time uh, being there waiting for him with my glove and my bat and everything because he said he was coming to the game, but the brother never showed up. And I think my mom really knew he wasn't going to come, but she, she just couldn't take that hope away from me in the midst of what I was going through. This happened consistently throughout my life with my father. My father, uh, he ended up having uh, children with another woman, and uh, he would sometimes come to the house, and he'd be, really, he'd be real, real sick. He'd be wrestling with his addiction, and he would show up, but my mom would always take care of him. She would let him come in, she'd let him eat some food, and sometimes he would even bring his daughter, my half-sister Marla, with him. And my mom would say, uh, Ron, get some food, uh, you can eat. I'm a junior. She would say, get some food, you can eat, uh, but I can't let you stay here in this condition. She would even say sometimes that, um, you know what, when you leave right now, you can't take Marla with you because you're not in a condition to really have her with you. Then she would call the woman the mother of Marla, and say, don't worry, your daughter's okay, she's with me. Um, but Ron wasn't in a position to really have her, but she's here, she's safe, she's okay. This was the foundation that my mom had set. We'd also seen uh, miracles happen in our life growing up because of mom's faith, I believe. I remember one time that we were uh, really going through a difficult time financially, that we were about to lose our house that we were in. The mortgage at the time was about $457, and we couldn't make that. But the house was going to get foreclosed on, and I remember that uh, 
we were, we were in church one day, and mom was worshiping. She was praying. She was crying. And the pastor of the church had her come up and set her right in front of the altar, gave her a shoebox, and told the congregation that we were going to collect an offering for the Waddell family. They didn't know exactly what our situation was, but by the time that offering was done, there was over $10,000 in that box. This is the, the experience, this is the, 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 the place that I grew up in as far as a faithful experience about knowing who God was and how he responds. When I turned um, about eighth grade, 13 years old or so, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. And after a double mastectomy and lots of prayer, um, the cancer went into remission. As the cancer went into remission, and we knew that God was a God who heals, so we had this trust, we had this faith that he was going to do that. So in some ways for me, as a 13-year-old, it wasn't that big of a surprise. Like, that's what God does, right? <clears throat> and so uh, as she went through that, um, as she was ill, um, we, we, we had a really challenging time going through that, especially the intense chemotherapy and the radiation. The radiation was the one that really, um, really affected me deeply. There were times when we would see just what the skin would look like and just how much that would cause the, uh, the rawness of the skin to be shown and how she dealt with that. But I never heard this lady complain. About a year later, my freshman year in high school, the cancer came back, and this time more aggressively, and it came back as lung cancer. We still had this faith, we still had this trust that God was a God who heals. And, and, and so we continued to pray for her, we continued to uh, believe that God was going to work a miracle in her life, but we've seen her get progressively worse. She, she, was, she got so ill that they, she had to carry the oxygen tank with her wherever she went. And we even had the oxygen machine <clears throat> set up in the house. And we'd have a tube that would go down the hallway, through the living room, through the kitchen, to wherever mom was, so that she could have this, this fresh oxygen. She, um, she got very ill to the point that she had to go to the hospital. It was there in the hospital that uh, my sister's, they would go visit. Uh, I wouldn't go visit. I, I didn't want to see my mom in that condition, and I was believing God was going to heal her anyway. It was one night, though, that she, uh, she had called, and um, we were called by one of the aunts, I believe, and told all of us as the children that mom wanted us all up at the hospital. So we all went to the hospital, um, and I remember as my aunt came in um, that uh, mom said to her, <laughs> She said, uh, she said, Alora, how you doing? Is there anything that you need from me? It's like, just relax. Like, what are you doing? We stayed with mom that day. Um, she, uh, for the most of that day, she, she, she got worse even during that day, kind of in and out of consciousness uh, to the point that uh, by the time we left that evening, she was unconscious, hooked up to machines. She had all kind of tubes um, into her chest and uh, in her nose. Um, and so we left that night. We drove back to the house. It was about a 30-minute ride back to the house. And this is before cell phones and things. So it wasn't until we got back to the crib that we heard we got a call from somebody that said mom had passed away. 
So there I was at that point, I was about 14 years old. I had no mother and I had no father. It was in the will for my oldest sister, Bernadette, to come and take over the, uh, the house that me and my younger sister, Kelly, was living in. I was 14. I believe Kelly was eight or nine at the time. And so Dawn, that's her nickname. I don't know why she got that nickname, but uh, Dawn, she moved in. And she moved in with her boyfriend, Troy, and her two, uh, her two children, Mark and Sierra. Troy, uh, he had a, a, an issue with uh, addiction as well. But Troy's thing really was that he was physically abusive toward my sister, to the point that she had multiple black eyes, she had uh, broken bones here or there, and she would always make up an excuse about why that happened. It was a slip or a fall, or um, she was just careless or something like that. And so in the house, all this stuff was going on. Um, but whenever we went out, the way we had to act was like everything was cool. And me as a young man, not really understanding what was going on, not having that father growing up, um, I was a very confused soul. I, I wasn't sure. I knew I needed to do something, but I didn't know what to do because uh, this cat was about 35 years old. Um, he, was, he was much larger than me. At that time, y'all look at me now, but at 14, I think I was at a buck oh five. But Troy, one night, um, we got into an altercation. My, my sister, uh, Bernadette, she, uh, I had gotten an a, a argument with her son and whatever happened, um, she felt that uh, I was in the wrong and I needed to get set right. So she came down the hallway with a two-by-four to help me figure out what I should be doing right. So when she came down the hallway and got to the room, and she was very, she was very uh, rambunctious, and she had a lot of energy going on, she was about to spaz on me. And so uh, I, was, I was strong enough to grab the two-by-four and be like, listen, I'm not going to get hit with a two-by-four tonight. Like, that, uh, that's not going to happen. And so while I'm holding her, holding the two-by-four and trying to restrain her from, uh, you know, physically assaulting me and all those things, I have both my hands on her and really just trying to get her to calm down, like relax, like it's not that serious. Now Troy comes steaming down the hallway and he's yelling and he's cussing and he's swearing, boy, you don't know who I am, you don't know what you're doing, Yo, you're out your mind, you don't know who this is. And so I'm arguing back with him until he smacked me right in my lip. I remember the blood when it exploded and hit my glasses. And then I touched it, and I, and I looked at all the blood dripping down, and I, I had enough at that point. I had really dealt with what was going on with my mom. I had all this stuff going on, what was happening in the house with Troy and my sister. And I, when I saw that blood, it was like the movies where you're just like, man, like this, is, this, was, this was really happening. I ran to the kitchen, I opened the knife drawer, and I pulled out the largest knife that I could find. I was heading back down the hallway to where Troy was still running his mouth about who he was and how gangsty he was and what he was going to do with me. But at that point, even as I tell the story now, viscerally I can feel it as I get transported back there. But I was in that mindset like when you read the paper and they say, listen, like someone hit them or stabbed them 23 times and you're like, how in the world did that happen? That's the level of rage I was in.
My little sister Kelly, she came out of the bathroom, and when I caught her eye to God's glory and his grace, that's what kind of shook me out of what I was going through. And I was like, what, what, is, what, what am I doing? My sister said I was crazy. She called around to all the aunts and uncles and told the story from her perspective and that I was out of my mind. That night, I slept in a car. The night after that, I slept in a car as well. At this point, my, oldest, my second oldest sister, Anne Marie, she was living in Westboro. She had somehow caught wind of what was going on, and um, we, she had gotten in touch with me, and we began to set up this uh, behind-the-scenes move for, us to, for me to get from New Jersey to Massachusetts. <clears throat> we set it up as if it was uh, uh, me visiting for the summer, for a little summer vacation to check out what Massachusetts was like, because Westboro was lovely in the summer. But behind the scenes, what we were doing was we were, we were, we were making sure all the uh, school things were transferred. We were making sure that everything as far as guardianship and things like that were being transferred until the final moment when we made the move and I was up here that she called my sister Bernadette and told her that I was going to stay uh, for the foreseeable future. My sister Anne at the time was 22. I think her husband was 23. I was 16. This is my junior year of high school. And um, they had two young children of their own, Aubrey, who was three, Charity, who was two. And my sister Ann just knew that I couldn't stay where I was, but as I look back in hindsight, they, I don't, they, don't, they weren't really ready for what I was bringing. One, I was 16, teenagers, but I also had this, this other stuff that I was dealing with. And as I moved up to Massachusetts, my sister, though they knew who God was, they weren't really actively pursuing him, you know? It was like, yeah, he's cool. We had like a Jesus picture on the wall or something like that. But we weren't like reading the Bible. We weren't going to church. We weren't doing any, any of those things. Um, and so for me, uh, it was an opportunity to find my identity somewhere else. And so it was a place for me to be able to get connected to wherever I could get accepted. As the song was saying, trying to fill old holes and voids, like there was a void in me about my acceptance, my identity, like feeling loved and knowing who I was. And so if there was anybody that was going to allow that to happen, then I was willing to be whoever I needed to be for that to, to take place. So it was at that point that I began smoking weed and doing a lot of drinking, even going to school high, getting, having, having a thermos. I remember having thermoses on the, on, the, on the desk with liquor in it, you know, going down that road. It was, it was in that time, too, that, um, that uh, I, was, I, was, I was really, I was lying a lot. I, my sister and them, though, we, we knew that that couldn't be who I was, but... Um, one thing I did, at, they actually, uh, I, for about three months, uh, they believed I was working at McDonald's, but I got fired like three months before that, but, but I still kept the uniform on. I would go chill with my friends and then come back at the right time, and, and then they'd be like, how was work? And I'd tell a story. I had stories like what really happened. I would, I would tell the whole deal. Yeah, this guy came in and whatever, um, until her and my two nieces came to, uh, to work one day to get a, uh, uh, what you guys call a frap. I call it a milkshake. Um, they came to get a milkshake and asked the manager, is Ron working today? And she said, Ron? He said, yeah. She said, oh, he, that brother hasn't worked here for about three months. <laughs> Y'all laugh now. I wasn't laughing. <laughs> when, I, 
when I had to, when I, when I had to go home, I went home and I, I, Ann said, yes, we stopped by work today. And that feeling in the pit of your stomach when, you, when you're caught in your lies, right? So this was something that went on constantly. Um, they moved to Grafton um, a year after that. The year before my senior year, they moved to Grafton High School. Um, and I think I went to Grafton High School maybe like one or two days. Um, I never showed up over there. I was really skipping a lot of school. I had a friend, Diane, who was living in Westboro, and um, I used to call her and say, hey, listen, I need you to call me out because I need a female voice. Just be my, be my sister or something. Call me out. And then we would go to her house because this was some real Westboro stuff that I had never experienced. But her mom had moved to Ireland, but like was visiting Ireland or something for an extended period of time. But she was uh, still in Westboro and mom was paying the mortgage. So like it was just her in the house and no one else. So it'd be me, her, and her younger brother, Joe, who was 15, like doing whatever he wanted in his house. That was just so mind-boggling to me. We was drinking, we was partying, we was doing whatever we wanted. Then I would go back to my sister's house and, um, you know, after school time uh, and all those things. And I began to, uh, I found uh, my brother in law who had an adult movie collection, and I, I began to, I stole some of his videos, and he found that out, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back for them. Uh, they set me down and they said, Hey, Ron, you got about three weeks to figure out what you're gonna do, but you can't live here anymore. I didn't like the feeling of being in a place where I wasn't wanted, so it was a, I think I, I know I left like two days after that. I just left to a friend's house. I was homeless in Westboro. That's crazy. I had some friends that would let me sneak in their basements and um, things like that, um, but I would always like find myself back at the school because that's really where I felt accepted. I had friends or those that I called friends, right? Um, and so I remember hanging out at the football practice one day when I really wasn't supposed to be there, but that's the only place I knew to go, and the coaches were cool. So I was sitting at the football practice, and a lady came up to me, and she said to me, um, she said, I heard about your story, and uh, we, me and my husband, we'd love to help you. I said, I don't need your help. Uh, pride, right? I don't need your help. Things is good for me. She said, okay, cool. Well, listen, um, if you just want to come by and check out the house, uh, then you can make a decision after that. So I jumped in the car with Nancy. We drove to the house. I ain't never seen a house like this. This thing was bananas. It was like three, three if y'all been to Westboro, some of y'all lived here, y'all know. But that's not where I grew up. So when we got to the house, um, I changed my mind. I stayed with Nancy. I, 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 said, I said, we can do this. Um, I stayed with them. They, they blessed me to be able to stay with them until I, I finished high school. Um, I still was um, a little wild there. Um, they used to go to bed at 8 o'clock, which was... I don't understand why they did that either, um, but they did, and so me and their two other children, we would do whatever we wanted there too. She, uh, she dropped me off uh, at Bridgewater State um, the, uh, in the fall of 1999. Um, the last thing that Nancy Davidson said to me as she dropped me off and was driving away after you had everything moved in, she said, Ron, just be careful, don't make black friends. I don't, I don't think it's a correlation, but I made black friends, and, 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 and about a month or two after that, I got arrested for selling weed on campus. 
Bridgewater State is a dry campus, well, it was at the time, meaning if you got caught with any uh, drugs or anything like that, you had to get out of the dorms. The dorm is where I lived. That was my home. That was the only place I had to, to lay my head. But that was going down, too. I was homeless again. There was, a, there, was a, uh, there was some Haitian exchange students that let me live with them uh, for the rest of that semester. My uh, second semester, I wrote, a, I wrote a really dope letter, a really good letter, excuse me, a really good letter. <laughs> y'all get caught up to my language, y'all understand soon. But uh, I wrote a really good letter about my situation into which they allowed me to leapfrog the list to get back in that following semester. So I was able to finish my freshman semester. Uh, the first semester of my sophomore year, things were going okay, normal college stuff, until I got a bill from the registrar that said I owed $8,000. Now previously, I think I might have paid $80 at the registrar because of my financial situation. So when I got the bill for $8,000, I went down, I said, listen, I think you have a couple too many zeros on this deal. They said, no, sir, um, let me check this. Uh, no, sir, this is actually correct. Uh, Mr. Waddell, uh, you did not fill out financial aid. You owe us eight grand. Um, do you have that? I don't have eight, eight, eight K right now. So it was a matter of time that they said, uh, well, through the end of the semester, if we don't get that, then you won't be able to be here any longer. My sophomore year, the first semester of my sophomore year, when I got that, that was the end of my college career, as far as taking classes. For about the next two years, I lived uh, illegally in the dorms. I lived with different friends. I lived uh, in other places where I could find somewhere to sleep. There were sometimes I would sleep on porches. There were sometimes that I couldn't get in, and so I would take a train to Boston, and I would sleep at the Boston train station. There were sometimes I would sleep on park benches. The toughest thing about being homeless is about five, six o'clock, when you see people have somewhere to go, they have somewhere to go home, and you don't. That's when it really hits you as well as having in your head from the moment you wake up, I'm not sure where I'm going to sleep tonight. That's a, whole nother, that's a whole nother beast of a feeling. I lived illegally in those dorms um, until I uh, made a choice to say that I needed to get some structure in my life, and so I went to the Navy. I, I enrolled in the Navy. I went through the whole program with them, and I said, this is it, man. I'm going to get some discipline, and this is going to get straightened out. My little sister at this point was 14. She had a son, and I said, this is great. I'm going to get her out of that situation because I'd always felt guilty of leaving her and coming to Massachusetts and leaving her in that situation with Troy and my other sister. And so going to the military, this was going to be it. I could become the guardian. Her son could take, uh, could take advantage of the housing there and the, all that, and it was going to go well. And that was what the plan was for about a month and a half until I got called down to optometry. As I got called down to optometry, they said, Mr. Waddell, set me in the chair. We just need to do some follow-up tests. And as the doctor was looking in the uh, whatever those things are. <laughs> He's looking through the device, and he called in. He said, listen, uh, his assistant, hey, go get the, go get the residents. Get, the, get them in here. So they brought them in, and they're all looking in the thing, and I'm sitting in the chair, and they're like, he's like, do you see it? Do you, you, you look, this is, a, this is wild. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we've only read about this. <laughs> I'm like, listen, you do know I'm sitting here, right? Like, can I get in on what y'all see? Uh, but ultimately told me that I had an eye dystrophy that made me unfit for any military duty. 
And as I sat in that chair, that was probably the lowest moment that I experienced. Because I felt no one wanted me. My dad didn't. My mom was gone. My sisters had said, I'm choosing this, this man, Troy, over you. My other sister, Ann, had asked me to leave. And now the military said that you weren't even any good. When I came back to Massachusetts from Chicago, Illinois, where the training site is, uh, I, I, I called my sister in. I said, listen, this is what happened. I have nowhere to go, really. Uh, I, I need you to have some mercy. Her husband in, in, uh, at the time, which we're good friends now, just by the way, at the time they, they said, well, listen, we'll give you another three weeks to figure out what you're going to do. But like I said, man, you can't stay here no more. It's just not a good spot. Someone had mentioned to me something about Job Corps, so I, uh, I got back, I enrolled into Job Corps, um, and I enrolled to the easiest trade for me, which was like, at the time, a business clerical trade. Basically, you sat in a room and you had to type all day and learn how to format letters. Um, and that was really easy to me, because I grew up in Westboro, and I was using AIM. <laughs> so my words per minute got up off of AIM. And so uh, I, I blew through that, and after three months, I finished the trade, and I got hired working at uh, a national restoration company, insurance restoration company, as like a receptionist. And so as I was there, um, things began to look a little bit better, but I still really wasn't rocking with the Lord like that. It was, um, it was in that time that uh, I really began to, I was hanging out with my friend Sarah one night, and Sarah, uh, <laughs> she, had, um, she, had, she had some mushrooms, uh, these chocolate well, they were like special mushrooms, not regular, like, yeah, they were special mushrooms. And um, they were baked into a chocolate, and she said, these are really powerful. I got them from this hippie. Um, so, like, just eat a little bit. I said, okay, cool, ate the whole thing. And, and, and at the time, Sarah said to me, she said, listen, um, I feel like something weird's happening. I said, yeah, we just ate these mushrooms, like. But she said, no, 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 something weird, like, in my life. Like, I've been at this pool league, and I feel like, um, like, there's angels or something, like, God is watching me or whatever. And I said, yeah, yeah. This is when, like, you know, all the stuff I had grown up would begin to come back. And I said to her, I said, yeah, like, the world is going to end at some point, Sarah. And she's looking at me, like, what are you talking about? I said, no, no, it's in the Bible, man, like, you know. And she said, uh, what are you talking about? I said, you got a Bible in here? She did. We pulled the Bible out. And as anybody on mushrooms should do, we read the book of Revelations. <laughs> Y'all know the book. <laughs> so at that point, um, like in that moment though, y'all, I was really, I was really bugged out. I, 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 was, I was sincerely under the impression that the world was gonna end in five minutes. <laughs> and I had no idea where my soul was gonna spend eternity. I'm on the floor crying, Sarah's crying. And I used to think that it was crazy, but as I think about it now, I think how gracious God was that he allowed that to happen in my life, that he brought that to my awareness. Sarah, shortly after that, she got connected to a church here in the city, Christian Community Church. Some may know them, Sarai Rivera and Jose Encarnacion. She got connected to that church. I was still wilding out, but she told me, she said, listen, I'm going to this church. Like, you need to come, like, check it out. Like, come to the Bible study one of these nights. 
So I was like, all right, cool, I'll check it out, you know. Went to the Bible study, connected with, with the Pastor Jose, um, in which he said to me, he said, listen, man, um, I told him kind of what I was going through, where my story was, and what I was dealing with. He said, listen, man, I, um, I'd love to have some coffee with you at, uh, at Dunkin' Donuts later this week. And so I did, I met with him, and he really just showed me uh, the graciousness of God through his ability to just love on me in the midst of what I was going through. He said to me at that point, he said, listen, I'm doing a Bible study inside a detention center with young men. Um, I think that you should come, man. And I'm like, I don't know about that, brother. Like, I'm still a mess. I was trying to figure out what I'm doing. Uh, I don't know if I should go with you. He said, nah, we're going next Tuesday. I'll pick you up. And so he came, he picked me up. We went to the detention center, and uh, I did that with him for about eight months. After eight months, as he was just discipling and really fathering me through all that, um, he said, listen, I got some other things I got to do. I feel like you've got this down. Uh, I'm going to go do that, and you keep rocking. And so I did. As you built a connection with these young brothers inside and really were able to see what the power of God was doing in their life, it was something that was really just amazing to watch and be a part of and be used to do. I didn't even have a car at the time. I used to ride my bike from Vernon Street to the train station here, take the train with my bike to Grafton, and then ride my bike from the Grafton stop to the facility. It was, it was a good setup, except for when the brothers wanted prayer, besides when my train was going to come, because I would miss my train back and have to ride the bike back to Worcester. It wasn't too bad, except for the nights it was raining. You know? And as I, uh, as, I, as I walked through this, and I was with them for over, um, over 12 years with Jose and Sarai, and really just showed me who God was and, and mentored me through that. For the last two years, I was able, I was blessed to connect with Richie Gonzalez. Y'all know Richie? If you know Richie, Richie Gonzalez, um, he really showed me an amazing uh, way to live as far as self-sacrificially unconditional love for those that are broken. It was, it was with him that I began to understand another level of forgiveness and another level of just loving on folks and showing a, a level of grace. It was a moment that I was doing some work inside of a prison with um, one of the guys, and I was talking with him about uh, his father and about um, his children and, and, and reconciling with his father until the brother in the prison said to me, he said, what about you and your, and your children? Will you let them meet your dad? At the time he said that to me, I hadn't talked to my father in 20 plus years. But God put a heavy burden on my heart, really, to look at him in a way that said, what if I hadn't heard from Joshua and Isaiah in 20 plus odd years? What would I be feeling? What kind of shame, what kind of guilt would I be holding? And so I called my dad, and I, uh, this is how the conversation went, actually. I called him, and it was at the time in my, my life and my marriage, we had been married 10 years, and um, it was just a really challenging time for us, and I felt like I wanted to just get in a car and just drive somewhere. And so I was praying, and I was like, Lord, I really need to talk to somebody about this. And the Lord actually told me, you know what he said, call? He said, call your dad, because he'll know a lot about this. 
So I called my dad and I told him, I said, Dad, listen, man, I know I haven't talked to you. This is your son. I said, this is how I'm feeling. I said, listen, some days I feel like I'm going to mess this whole thing up. And I just want to know what happened. And he told me that he grew up without a father. And he thought that what he was doing was the best he could as far as he just threw some money and came to see us every once in a while. Last October, I was blessed to be able to go down to Philadelphia and meet with my dad for the first time since I was 15. And as I sat with him, I wanted him to recognize that I was okay. I wanted him to know that he didn't need to carry any shame or guilt. Because what I knew at that point was what Romans 8.28 tells us. Romans 8.28 tells us that God will work all things out for our good. Here it is. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those are called according to his purpose. And so as I looked at the experiences in my life, as I look at the different struggles and the sufferings, things that I've gone through, I'm always looking for the ultimate good that God is working in me and what he has worked in me. The fact that my father wasn't there is the reason why I'm the father I am today. That time I spent with Nancy Davidson helped me realize to love the person and not my own personal agenda more than what the person really is. It was ultimately this that brought me to the point to be able to meet with my dad and have that conversation and just let him just be forgiven. And physically, I didn't even realize, you hear people talk about it, I didn't know how much of that I was still carrying until I was in that moment, was able to release that bitterness and that grief that I was holding on to. It's because of the experiences that I've been through that me and my brother Junito have started Legendary Legacies. Because there are a number of young men, women too, we work with young men, who, are in my, who, who have been in my condition, who have been in my situation, who ultimately are just looking for someone to love them and they're filling it with all the wrong stuff. We call it fronting, putting a mask on, being something you're not so you can feel accepted. So if it means to be a gang member, if it means to sell drugs, if it means to be a clown, if it means to be a jokester, whatever it is, as long as I can feel some love, then I will do that, even though that's not who I really am. And so we work with these guys to really love on them, care them, care for them, just really let them experience the grace of, the grace of God through us, trying to father them in a way that they had never experienced. And that's the blessing of when you're able to stand on the, on the truth of God's word about what Romans 8.28 tells us. So no matter what you're going through, my, my, my friend said it to me like this. He said, listen, he said, there's nobody that can avoid suffering. Christian, non-Christian, you can't avoid it. But the hope of Christ is that what I'm going through, there's an ultimate good that God's working out in it. And if I can keep my eyes on that, then it allows me to see the experience from a whole different perspective, a perspective where God is really loving me and showing me some stuff if I could just take a step back and stop being selfish. And so, uh, this is what I would leave you with, to recognize 
that whatever your situation is, whatever your condition you're going through, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ or you want to know who he is, that he's still trying to work an ultimate good in you. I think about my two sons. they, They need parenting in different ways. And so I've got to make sure that I parent Josh in a way that gives the, brings the best out of him, and I've got to adjust my parenting for Isaiah to bring the best out of him. And God's doing that with each and every one of us as our Heavenly Father. He's working the ultimate good in you so that he may be glorified. God bless you.